Why don't we go ahead and uh, turn in your Bibles and please stand to Matthew 21. Matthew 21 for the reading of God's Word. This is Matthew 21, verses 1 to 11, as it is Palm Sunday. Matthew writes, When they approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It's a great text, isn't it? It's a Palm Sunday text. It preaches great. But this isn't our text this morning. I just thought we should read it though because it is Palm Sunday. But this text does lead us into, as Jake said earlier, this whole Passion Week. This week prior to the eventual arrest and crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as this text does lead us into Passion Week and, and, and all that that encompasses until he gloriously resurrects on the third day, what I want us to examine this morning along these lines is just a simple question. Why? Why did Jesus have to die? Because that's kind of the first thing in this series of events that start to take place come Friday. Why did Jesus have to die? So, so to answer this question, let's, let's go back a little bit to the beginning part of this story. And for those of you who are moms, you will, I think, especially <clears throat> relate to this because it's the story of a mom. It's the story of a mom who had a son, a son that she loved very much. And it's It's not that she loved him more than her other children, but certainly the son was unique. Even when his mom found out that she was pregnant, it didn't happen by way of her taking some pregnancy test or going to the doctor. Rather, 
a holy angel revealed this to her, saying, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And you shall name Him Jesus. And He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give Him the throne of His father David, and He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and His kingdom will have no end. And from that moment on, this child's life, everything about this child would be nothing less than extraordinary. Her soon-to-be husband was also visited by this holy messenger of the Lord and was also told that his son's name would be Jesus, but that he would also save his people from their sins. You think, how how remarkable and just incredible and amazing these, these truths were from heaven. Not only would your son be the son of God, but his name would be Jehovah is salvation. And furthermore, he would be this great king. One that would reign forever over a kingdom with absolutely no end. And whose people would also rule and reign with him for all eternity. It's interesting because from day one, Mary, Joseph, And some others that came into contact with them, people like Zacharias or Elizabeth or Simeon or Anna, they all knew and understood the uniqueness of Jesus, who he was and what he was to become, excuse me. They knew that that he would be the prophesied redeemer, the horn of salvation and the one to save the people from their enemies. He would be the Christ. He would be the Messiah. He would be the Lord, the consolation of Israel and a light of revelation to the Gentiles as well as the glory of his people Israel. And they knew that he was appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and that he would be opposed. They knew That he would pierce souls and reveal hearts. And thinking about this, I I started wondering. I, I wondered if Mary and Joseph or any of these others thought about how exactly God was going to do all of this. Not to say that they doubted God in any way, but realistically, do you thought think that they they thought maybe about how this might be accomplished? Especially this this whole saving the people from their sins part. I mean, did their minds go back to the Old Testament prophecy of the Messiah? Did they did they think in their minds about Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant? Did they really have any idea of how this was all going to play out? And yet, most extraordinarily, from the beginning, it was predetermined by God that this son to Mary and Joseph and God would accomplish all of these just absolutely amazing things for mankind by dying. Dying. It would be through his death. That salvation would be realized. And not just some kind of freak accident. 
or disease or dying of old age. The, the man would die young. He would die in the prime of his life. In fact, he would even be murdered. He would be a convicted criminal who was not guilty of the crime he had been convicted of, and he would be sentenced to execution. In fact, he would suffer a very humiliating, torturous, painful death, and his family, his friends, his disciples, his own mother would watch it all right before their eyes. And again, I just think this should raise the question in our minds, why? Why did Jesus, son to Mary and Joseph, son to God the Father, why did he have to die in the prime of his life and ministry in such a horrific and even demeaning way? Do you think Mary ever wondered that? I mean, even if she understood the Old Testament prophecy and she she knew her son to be God and she heard her son talk about his imminent death, even his resurrection, do you do you think that even for a brief moment she 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 wondered why her son, her son that she loved, her little boy, her young man, would have to die this way? Has it ever crossed your mind? Do you ever wonder why did Jesus have to die? I mean, come on, couldn't there have been some other way for God to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish? I mean, even Jesus himself asked in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night he was arrested, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. That would be the cup of suffering and God's wrath that he was about to endure. He said, yet not my will, but yours be done. And sure, he's God and and he can do anything he wants. But you see, in his infinite and all perfect wisdom, he decided that the death of his own son would be the very best way. (laughs) The best way for what? Well, you answer salvation and the glory of God, of course. Yes, yes, but what does that really mean? I mean, why do we have this whole bloody, humiliating, torturous death of a, on a cross aspect? And that's the question, friends, that we are going to answer today then. Why did Jesus have to die? And, and to answer that, I'm going to show you this morning... We might come up with more, but we're going to look at at six reasons why Jesus had to die so that you can know how exactly to be saved so that you can give praise and glory and worship to the Lord and so that you can tell others about these great truths. And the first is this. Jesus had to die... To atone for our sin. He had to die to atone for our sin. Now atonement is is one of those big 
$5 theological words that refers to God's act of dealing with the primary human problem of sin. You see, we all have this, this very serious issue going on with us. It's called iniquity. It's called transgression. It's called sin. And simply put, sin is disobedience to God as set forth in His Word, be it in thought or word or deed. Sin is an awful thing because it has such steep consequences. For the wages of sin is what? Death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death which is separation from God and His Son for all eternity. And not just separation, but punishment. Punishment in hell and the lake of fire. The Bible teaches that sin, going all the way back to the fall of Adam and Eve, has infected all of mankind. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one, going back to the Psalms. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. Infected to the point where we cannot avoid it. We cannot escape it. We cannot break ourselves out of the the prison that sin keeps us in. We have been caught by the snare of the devil. Having been held captive by him to do his work. Will. We had uh, some friends once and oh man, I felt so bad for them. They ended up, they had a rat problem in their house. Nothing as gnarly as having a rat problem. And, and, and it made me think, we are like these rats. We are, we are like dirty, diseased rats who are only thinking about satisfying our own desires of, of filling our bellies like these rats. And these rats are, are drawn in by the sweet smell of something enticing. And of course, they had the exterminator out and they, you know, put those little traps of like sticky, syrupy, whatever, you know, all around. And, and as the rat creeps forward, only concerned with satisfying his own cravings with what he has found, the next thing you know, it's too late. Because he realizes that what he thought was, you know, this yummy, sticky, sweet syrup, it's really his death trap. And now he is stuck to the trap. And he tries to free himself. He tries to escape. But as he does this, he just gets his body himself more stuck until he starts to die a slow death. Unable to help himself in any way, shape or form. This is us. This is us spiritually speaking. Spiritually speaking, we are dead. We are like walking death zombies because of our trespasses and sins. We are unable to help ourselves in, in, in any way. We are only able to do the deeds of our father, Satan, which amount to pursuing our own lusts and indulging the desires of our bodies and our minds. And because of this, we are nature, by our nature, children of wrath. God's wrath and we are without hope no hope and this either was you or it is you you are dead to your sin with no hope 
other than God's wrath to be upon you. And you say, well, okay, all right, fine, but why can't God just kind of, you know, poof, magically wave his hand and all of our sin just vanishes, disappears. He just kind of forgets about it. He can't do that. He can't do that because he is an all-perfect, holy, righteous God who has set up standards of perfection and holiness for all of us. And when we don't live up to these standards, as we've already discovered, none of us can, then God can't just turn a blind eye to sin. He can't just wink at it. He can't just kind of step back and sweep it under the carpet. Because he is the all-perfect, holy, righteous judge. Our sin must be dealt with. And he does so through the atoning work of his son. Going back to the Old Testament, this word atonement, it literally means to cover over. And in the sense of, of pacifying or appeasing or making amends. In Psalm 32 and verse 1, it says, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. In other words, God's just and holy wrath aimed at us as sinners must be appeased. God's justice must be satisfied. Amends must be made. And a simple, uh, I'm sorry, doesn't suffice. Some of you may have heard this illustration or maybe you've used it yourself. But, you know, imagine that... um, you decided that you needed some big money quick. And so, you know, you figured, gosh, they looted Rodeo Drive. So I'm just going to go back down to Rodeo Drive and I'm going to pick this cool, fancy jewelry store and uh, I'm going to bust on in there and break into it. And uh, I am going to, uh, you know, steal all of these uh, these jewels. And so you do that. But of course, you're apprehended and they've got video cameras everywhere. And so you go and you appear in the courtroom and just for argument's sake, pretend there's no jury involved, right? It's just a you and a judge, right? But there is this packed courtroom that wants to watch and see and hear. And and it is so obvious because there's eyewitnesses from the jewelry store that saw you do it. You weren't wearing a mask or anything like that to keep yourself hidden. And you've got all these video cameras. And it's, and it's very obvious, clear as light of day that you did this. And you're guilty. And and you're before the judge. And the judge knows that you're guilty. Everybody in the courtroom knows that you're guilty. And the, and the judge says, you know what? <laughs> and I'm just having too good a day. The sun is shining and the birds are singing. You know what? I, just get out of here. Just go. Just just get out of my court. You're free to go. You're free to go. I mean, all of us, right? If we were in that courtroom, we would be like, stop. You are an unjust judge. You can't do that. Justice has to be satisfied. I mean, would we say that that's a just judge? Of course not. Would you call him a perfect, holy, and righteous judge? Absolutely not in a million years. A perfect, holy, righteous judge who demands justice has to punish. 
He has to punish sin, and, and our God does so by requiring a perfect life. A body killed and its blood shed to make atonement, covering up of sin. In the Old Testament, that meant a substitutionary death and blood of an unblemished animal to atone for sin until the perfect, once-for-all blood sacrifice of His Son, we see that in the New Testament, would ultimately atone for sin. You say, well, why blood? What's the big deal about the blood? Leviticus 17 and verse 11 tells us, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. That's why the Israelites couldn't eat any meat before the blood had been drained out of the animal. Because blood contains life. And therefore it is sacred to God. Now, yeah, not like, you remember that show, that show on TV, Bizarre Foods with Andrew Zimmer. And the man used to drink blood and, you know, blood soup and whatever crazy stuff, you know. No, we're not doing that. The requirement of blood to cover sin was not just an Old Testament concept, but it carries over into the New Testament as well. We also see that in the New Testament, blood was required. In 1 John 1, 7, it tells us the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. It covers our sin. Ephesians 2 and verse 13 tells us that we have been brought near. Meaning brought near to God by the blood of Christ. Revelation 1 and verse 5 says to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. So Jesus had to die. He had to die in order to atone for our sin, cover our sin, wash away our sin. Secondly, Jesus had to die to be our sacrifice. You'll notice that a lot of these have some, some crossover, these, these truths. He had to die to be our sacrifice. Looking at Ephesians 5 and verse 2, Paul reminds us, he tells us to walk in love. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Now, what's a sacrifice? I'm going to give you Webster's. Webster's tells us it is the destruction or surrender of something for the sake of something else. It's also an act of offering something precious to a deity. And these are both true of sacrifices in the Bible where we see that they are offerings made to God. Right back in the Old Testament, people would, would give up or surrender something as a sacrifice made to God. Sacrifices were, were brought as gifts to God, as tributes. They were offered to God in honor of him being the king. And the most important sacrifice was the sacrifice for sin. In Hebrews 10 and verse 12, the author of Hebrews writes, But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for 
all time sat down at the right hand of God, referring to Christ Jesus. Now, what you and I need is to be rescued from our death sentence. And in order to do this, we need a sacrifice to be made on our behalf. A sacrifice that would be pleasing to God. You can't sacrifice yourself because, well, guess what? We're not worthy enough, not by a long shot. We are not without blemish or spot or stain, which this sacrifice to God requires. But if there was something, if there was someone that could become a sacrifice for us on our behalf, somebody that could take our place, receive the punishment instead of you and I, then we might stand a chance. Hebrews 9 and verse 26 tells us how Jesus has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And in verse 28, having been offered once to bear the sins of many. Now, furthermore, in order for Jesus to take your place, he would have to be a perfect sacrifice because that is God's standard. Remember, holiness, perfection, and thankfully, Jesus is, quote, one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 9.15. So in an Old Testament sense... Uh, a sacrifice then was was the ritual through which the Hebrew people offered the blood or the flesh of the animal as a substitute payment for sin. It was the mode by which acceptable worship was to be offered to God by guilty man. In other words, innocent life, right, for the... Sinful life, guilty life. And that's why those animals in the Old Testament had to be unblemished. They could have no defects or disease. They couldn't be injured. They couldn't be castrated. Now in the New Testament, of course, Jesus becomes our sacrifice. He is the one then who surrendered himself or gave himself up for us. God required a perfect sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins, and Jesus provided that sacrifice. That then is why the scriptures refer to him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Or a lamb unblemished and spotless, and a lamb that is led to slaughter. He would be our sacrifice. He had to die in order to be our sacrifice. Now, along with this, he also had to die to be our substitute. We've already mentioned that. Let's just look at that a little bit further. But he had to die to be our substitute. It goes hand in hand with sacrifice. To sacrifice is to offer a substitute, a person or thing that takes the place or function of another. To bring back our uh, bank robbery illustration for a moment, not a bank robbery, our jewelry store robbery. Um, you, you, you can imagine then, imagine if you will, that the accused, the person who has now um, been called guilty of this crime of robbing the jewelry store. Well, it turns out he's actually the son of the judge. And the sentence that 
his own father handed down was going to be serious prison time. But the judge, because of the love for his son, even though the son was absolutely guilty, 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 the judge steps down off his days, he takes off his robe, and he goes to jail in his son's place. He then becomes the sacrificial substitute for his son. We read in Mark 10, verse 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. To give his life, there's that death, right? He had to die. To give his life a ransom, literally meaning in place of, for many. There's that substitution. I think one of the just, oh man, the best passages to explain this whole idea of of sacrificial substitutionary atonement through the body and blood of Jesus is in Hebrews chapter 10. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning right there in verse 1. We're just going to go through a little bit of this passage, make some comments as we we go along. In Hebrews 10, the author of Hebrews writes this. Hebrews 10, verse 1. For the law, referring back to the Mosaic law. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come. And not the very form of things which can never, by the same sacrifices, which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Stop there for a moment. In other words, the sacrifices year after year that were governed by the Mosaic Old Testament law do not make one perfect. They do not fully and completely forgive sin. Look at verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins? Pause there for a moment. Meaning, if that was the case, that they made you perfect, the Old Testament law, then you would do it once, or the sacrifices, and that's it. You'd sacrifice once, it'd be over, you're good to go, no more guilt of sin. Look at verse 3. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Pause again. Since these sacrifices cannot completely erase sin, guilt, and condemnation, they would then be a perpetual reminder of sin year by year by year, and the constant need for God's forgiveness. Look at verse 5. Therefore, when he, referring to Christ, comes into the world, he says, and then we have a quote here from Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8. He says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body. Uh, Let me interject. Whose body do you think we're talking about? That's right. Christ's body. But a body you have prepared for me in whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. In other words, he's talking about those Old Testament sacrifices 
Verse 7, then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, this is verse 8, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. Just stop there for a moment. The new once for all sacrifice of Christ who had obediently done God's will would now replace the sacrificial system of the law by fulfilling it. Look at verse 10. By this will we have been sanctified. Sanctified, friends, made holy. To be set apart from sin for God. A continuing permanent condition of holiness. Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Let's interject and say there's that death, blood, sacrifice. Finally, once for all. In other words, never again would there be need to have a sacrifice for sins because it was all accomplished in and through Jesus. Verse 11 continues this explanation. When the author writes, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Friends, in parentheses here, many priests standing daily, sacrificing over and over versus one priest sitting down having offered the one and only needed sacrifice. Verse 13, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. This will be, of course, at the return of Christ. Verse 14, for by one offering he is perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Oh, friends, this is a believer's current and permanent standing with God. Look at verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. That just means that he, he bears witness. He attests to the truth. Um, for after saying, verse 16, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind. I will write them. He then says, verse 17, and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, and we could say, hallelujah, there is. There is no longer any offering for sin. In other words, no more bodies, no more blood, no more sacrifices needed. All compliments of the great Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. So, from this passage here, friends, just, just to highlight again, Old Testament law sacrifices, while required, cannot save you. Meaning required back then. They cannot make you perfect because they cannot take away sins, but they would remind us of our sin. They would point out the fact that we are indeed 
sinners. They were a sort of precursor to the good things to come. Secondly, Jesus Christ would be the new and good things to come, replacing the Old Testament sacrifices with his perfect, sinless self as a once-for-all-time sacrifice Thirdly, in doing so, he has perfected and sanctified all who would place their faith in him and his death and sacrifice on the cross. And fourthly, because of the forgiveness accomplished by the shedding of his blood, there is no longer a need for any sort of sin offering to be made ever again. Amen. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Fourthly, Jesus had to die to redeem us. He had to die in order to redeem us. Turn to 1 Peter. Let's keep going a little bit more there to the right. Not too far. 1 Peter. Right after James, which is after Hebrews. 1 Peter chapter 1. Just verses 17 to 19. The, the context here is, is Peter's call for believers to live Holy lives that they were have been saved unto. He says this in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 17. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Knowing that you were not, here's the word, redeemed. What's interesting there is, is it's the same word used for ransomed back uh, for that passage we read in Mark 10, 45. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Now, what does it mean to be redeemed? Well, biblically speaking, it means to purchase or to buy back, to set free by the payment of a price. And as I said, it goes hand in hand with ransom. If somebody's kidnapped and the the kidnappers are asking for a, a ransom, a ransom of money, it means that when they get the money, they will exchange or substitute that money for the person and release that person. I mean, that's the idea. And that's the idea here that we are actually held captive by our sin. Jesus's death is the ransom. He is substituting himself in our place and we get to go free. In this text of 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19, there can be no mistake that the Christian was held captive by someone or something. And you think, well, who would that be? Or what would that be? Sin and Satan. The scriptures teach that we are in bondage to sin, enslaved to it, dead in it, under it. It reigns in us. It masters us. It dwells in us. We are led by it. It entangles us. We practice it. And, and because of our sin, we are children of the devil. How's that for a double whammy? He is our father. The devil, as, as unbelievers, he is our father. 
And we have been ensnared and held captive by him and a part, are a part of his dominion and power. We've already mentioned about how, how we are dead in our trespasses and sins and unable to help our miserable selves in any way. And this is where Jesus comes in, but there's a price that must be paid. In C.S. Lewis's book, it's a favorite in our house, <clears throat> The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Young Edmund Pevensey has been seduced by the white witch into doing her will by becoming a traitor and selling out his brother Peter and two sisters, Susan and Lucy, all for some, oh, this pains me, Turkish delight. For those of you that that really know me, you know I love Turkish delight. Whenever we have our folks go to Turkey, I'm like, please bring me back some Turkish delight. A while after Edmund is rescued by some of King Aslan's army, at this point the white witch asks for an audience with Aslan and they meet. And when they do, she reminds him of the deep magic that the emperor set forth, whereas once someone comes to her side, as Edmund did, she has dominion over that person and the right to their life. Their blood now becomes her property. And if Aslan did not acquiesce and give Edmund back, then the deep magic bound by the law of the emperor would cause all of Narnia to be overturned and to perish in fire and water. So Aslan does a deal with the witch where he redeems Edmund. He buys him back from the white witch, the price of which is his own blood, his very life. And that is exactly what is meant when the scriptures teach that Jesus is our redeemer. He had to die in order to redeem us so that he could buy us back from sin and Satan at the cost of his own blood, his own life. Fifthly, Jesus had to die to be our propitiation. He had to die to be our propitiation. Now, here's another one of those $5. This one might even be a $10 theological word, propitiation. And as we've talked about it before, it refers to the fact that Jesus' sacrificial substitutionary death, God's wrath against our sin has to be appeased. It has to be averted from us who deserve it. And it needs to be directed at his son. It has to be directed at his son. First John 4.10 tells us, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. In other words, the expiation of our sins. You say, well, this, this kind of sounds like atonement. Yes, yes, there is, again, some crossover with with many of these truths, but whereas atonement is more about how God deals with our sin, propitiation is the means by which that atonement is accomplished. This should be a sobering reminder to all of us of the seriousness of sin. God hates sin. 
He also hates sinners who commit sin. I know that becomes a weird thing. That, well, God doesn't hate the sinner, but hates the sin. Then look up Psalm 5, Psalm eleven five, and Malachi 1, 2 to 3. That'll be for another time, all right? God hates it so much that one sin is enough to bring upon us his full wrath and send us to hell. In Nahum 1, verse 6. It says, who can stand before his indignation? Referring to God's anger. Who can endure the burning of his anger? The implied answer is, no one. No one. His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken upon by, are broken up by him. John chapter 3 and verse 36. It says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Romans 2 and verse 5, uh, Paul says, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation, the righteous judgment of God. And in Revelation 14 and verse 10, the context here is unbelievers who worship the beast during that tribulational period and take his mark on their forehead. It says, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The wrath of God is intense, friends, and like sin, extremely serious. You don't want it upon you. And thankfully, you don't have to have it upon you because Jesus became the propitiation for your sins. He took that wrath upon himself and it was torturous and it was humiliating and it was hurtful and it caused him much grief. But in doing so, he appeased his father and he averted the wrath meant for us. Now here's what is so utterly amazing and astounding is that we could not bring an offering good enough or impressive enough to avert his wrath. So God is actually the one who supplies the offering. He supplies the offering for us on our behalf. He knows what will appease himself. And it's no less than his very own son. Let this sink in. It'd be like a dad who, who made the rules for his household. And when a child broke those rules and justice needed to be satisfied by means of some kind of consequence, the dad offers himself as the one who would receive the consequences and deliver his own wrath upon himself. John Stott put it this way, quote, It is God himself who in holy wrath needs to be propitiated. God himself who in holy love undertook to do the propitiating. And God himself who in the person of his son died for the propitiation of our sins. 
Thus, God took his own loving initiative to appease his own righteous anger by bearing it his own self in his own son when he took his place, took our place and died for us. End quote. It's, it's, it's nothing short of remarkable, astounding, amazing. Hallelujah, what a savior. And Jesus had to die in order for this to be accomplished. He had to die to be our propitiation. Lastly, Jesus had to die to reconcile us. He had to die to reconcile us. The language of reconciliation in the Bible describes a thoroughly changed relationship. Moving from enemies to actual friends. It speaks of God's changed relationship that he initiates with us, his people, because of the death of his son. And you say, why do we need this changed relationship? Well, in Romans chapter 5, you can go ahead and turn there. Romans chapter 5, we're not going to comment on it. We're just going to read it. Chapter 5 of Romans 6 to 10, Paul says, for while we were still helpless at the right time, guess what? Christ died for the ungodly. It doesn't say guess what, I threw that in. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare to even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Real quickly, turn to Colossians. We're almost done here. Colossians chapter 1. Just a little bit to the right there. Colossians chapter 1, right after Philippians, before Thessalonians. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 to 20, Paul says this, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, the Him being Christ, and through Him to reconcile all things. Isn't that interesting? Not just people, but a whole fallen world is to be reconciled. He says, To Himself, having made peace through... The blood of his cross through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Imagine a friend wronging you in some way. I mean, they have sinned against you. They have broken the relationship that you had with them. They are just kind of off now doing their own thing with no thought of reconciling with you until you reach out to them. You offer forgiveness of sins. And they come to their senses and repent and accept 
your gracious offer. You have now been reconciled, brought back together in a right relationship. And this is what Jesus' death on the cross does for us. It provides that bridge back to God. As it says in Ephesians 2 and verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ because of his death. Now, loved ones, what do we do with this? I know it's not, it's not rocket science, right? It's, it's really pretty simple for us, and our application is going to be pretty simple, but I pray profound. Um, this week, especially Passion Week, won't you meditate on the significance of why Jesus had to die? Because he did. God decided that this was the way, right? This was the way. Think deeply about his atonement and what he had to do to deal with your sin problem, my sin problem. Think about his sacrifice and substitutionary death and what that is all about. His redemption and the fact that he actually had to buy us back. His propitiation, the fact that in his death, the wrath of his father would be satisfied. And then reconciliation and the fact that because of all this and by all of this, it brings us back into a, a right relationship with the father. And because of these truths, maybe, maybe you are out here today and you realize that you need to repent and believe. It's just as simple as that. That you need to, to know all of this, not just know it in your, in your mind, but trust and believe it in your heart that Jesus is the one to do this for you because of his death on the cross. And not just his death, but of course his burial and then his resurrection, his giving of the Holy Spirit to us. And if you would repent and believe right here, right now, as simple as that, repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ, then you will be saved. And maybe, maybe, you, maybe you need these truths this week just to bring praise and glory and honor and exaltation to the Lord. Maybe that's what you need to focus on this week with these truths. Maybe some of you need to take these truths and walk out these doors and share these truths with others. What a week to be able to do it, right? I mean, even out there in the secular world, they still, you know, can't deny that this is still, you know, Easter time, right? Or resurrection time and maybe they don't know a lot of what that's about let's tell them let's tell them and then next week we'll do the the kind of uh, countering of this and we'll answer the question why did jesus have to live because he had to live let's pray father in heaven we do thank you lord for just some tremendous truths as to why your son had to die. May we just be in awe of this this week. May you bring salvation to many even this week. And we pray all of this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.